0: Wilma Rudolph weighed just four and a half pounds when she was born prematurely on June 23, 1940, in St. Bethlehem, Tennessee. Her childhood was so full of obstacles, it's amazing she just survived it. She fought through double pneumonia and scarlet fever, and at four was diagnosed with polio an infantile paralysis. While she would recover from the polio, she lost strength in her left leg and foot, and was forced to wear leg braces for years. There weren't any medical facilities for poor black children in St. Bethlehem or nearby Clarksville at the time. So Wilma and her mother had to take the bus, 50 miles each way, to McCory Medical Clinic in Nashville every week for her to get treatment. Wilma's family rallied around her, taking turns massaging her leg, trying to help it heal. She was able to go from braces to orthopedic shoes when she was eight, and finally rid herself of those when she was 12. Wilma would attend Burt High School in Clarksville, where she wanted desperately to play basketball. She also started running track to help her stay in shape. When she was just 14, Tennessee State University track coach Ed Temple saw her play basketball and invited her to train with his track team, the TSU Tiger Bells. Two years later, when Wilma was just 16, She traveled to Seattle, where she tried out for the U.S. Olympic team. She qualified for the 200-meter sprint and traveled to Melbourne, Australia, as the youngest member of the U.S. track and field team. She was defeated in a preliminary heat, but went on to run the third leg of the 4x100-meter relay. Along with three other TSU Tiger Bells, she took the bronze medal. Wilma Rudolph went back to Tennessee finished high school, and entered Tennessee State in 1958. She trained hard, and at the 1960 Olympic trials in Abilene, Texas, she qualified for the 100 meter and set a world record in the 200. The 1960 Olympics were held in Rome and were the first Olympics televised worldwide. Wilma Rudolph took gold in both the 100 meter and the 200 meter races. She was also picked to run anchor in the four x 100 meter relay. She started the leg behind, but her long, graceful, powerful stride helped her catch up quick and cross the finish line first, bringing home her third gold. She became the first American woman in history to capture three golds in one Olympic Games. Since the games were televised, she catapulted to instant worldwide celebrity as people dubbed her the fastest woman in history. Not bad for a woman who a decade earlier could barely walk on her own. When I think of Wilma Rudolph and the obstacles she overcame in her journey to becoming the fastest woman on earth, I can't help but paraphrase the late great boxer Jack Dempsey. A champion is someone who gets up, even when they can't. I've traveled the country over, in each and every time. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to another episode of American Anthology. This is your host, Mike Harding, and it is wonderful to be with you today. I've spent the last few weeks exploring the west of Tennessee, from Nashville to Memphis, and then up the Mississippi River, and across the north to Clarksville. I topped it off with an amazing week at the Bonnaroo Music and Arts Festival in Manchester. To hear more about this journey, or to find out more about me, please visit my website, wwwmiles 2 That's www.miles, the number 2, gobeforeisleep.com. For the whole experience, be sure you follow me on Facebook, on Twitter at miles 2 gotweet and on Instagram at miles2gobeforeisleep, all using the number two for me and you. Music for this week's show comes from the incredibly talented West Tennessee blues artist Lindsey Butler and his band, The Blue Gentleman. It was recorded live on the front porch of the one-time home of blues legend Sleepy John Estes at the Exit 56 Blues Fest in Brownsville. It was a pleasure to meet Lindsey, and it's an honor to feature his music here today. It fits this episode perfectly. During the time since my last episode, the travel community lost one of our own when Anthony Bourdain took his own life in France. Tony showed us that travel is so much more than palm trees and five-star resorts. He took us to real places, many with real problems, and he did it fearlessly and honestly. This episode is dedicated to you, Tony, wherever you're traveling today. May the road rise to meet you, and the wind be ever at your back. West Tennessee is a fascinating, often tragic, always soulful part of the country, and a place I've always enjoyed and felt comfortable in. It's a part of the country with a difficult past, but hopefully a bright future. So grab a cold beverage, Sit back, relax, and enjoy these stories from West Tennessee. Yes, come on, oh, baby, don't you want to go? Yes, yeah, come on, oh, baby, don't you want to go? Back to the liberated city, my sweet home, Chicago. Jonathan Luther Jones was born on March 14, 1863, somewhere in Missouri. On the day he drew his first breath, the Second Battle of Vicksburg was raging, remarkably close to where he would draw his last. Jonathan was the first of five children that would bless the home of rural school teacher Frank Jones and his wife, Anne. The Jones family moved to Casey, Kentucky, when Jonathan was just a boy. Casey was a water stop for the Mobile and Ohio Railroad, and it was there that Jonathan's lifelong obsession with trains was born. When trains would pull into the station, young Jonathan could often be found running up and down the tracks, poking his head in and furiously asking questions of anyone and everyone he could track down. When he was just 15, Jonathan left home to pursue his dream of a life on the rails. He started his career as an apprentice telegraph operator and studied until he could do the job on his own. Soon, he was working as a brakeman on the run from Columbus, Kentucky, to Jackson, Tennessee, and then as a fireman running between Jackson and Mobile, Alabama. In 1881, when Jonathan was 18, he moved to Jackson, Tennessee, where he rented a room at the Brady Boarding House. When he arrived, Mr. Brady, the proprietor, Asked him his name. John Jones, he replied. And where are you from? Brady asked. Casey, Kentucky, sir, Jones replied. From that day onward, we would know and remember him by the nickname Brady then bestowed on him Casey Jones. Soon thereafter, Casey Jones met and fell in love with Mr. Brady's daughter, Janie. They would eventually marry and have three children together Charles, Helen, and John Lloyd also known as Casey Jr. By 1888, Casey was working as a fireman for the Illinois Central, and three years later, his lifelong dream was realized when Casey Jones was promoted to engineer. And a fine engineer he was. He understood the importance placed on, as they said it, arriving on the advertised, or getting in at the scheduled time. Casey had a distinctive train whistle, which sounded like a whippoorwill, and it was said that people along his run would set their watch by it. In his first few years, he was mostly running freight. In 1893, Casey volunteered to spend the summer in Chicago, running people back and forth to the Chicago World's Fair. He carried 100,000 people to the fair that summer and found he enjoyed it. After the fair, he volunteered to run engine 638 from Chicago to Water Valley, Mississippi, This was a brand new engine at the time, and Casey would continue to run it for the next seven years. In 1900, the Illinois Central introduced a cannonball run from Chicago to New Orleans. It was to have the fastest schedule in the history of the American railroad. The run was so fast that veteran engineers refused to make it, saying it was just too tight. Young Casey was always up for a challenge, though, and felt that if he could keep this run on the advertised, he could really make a name for himself and move up more quickly. He moved his family to Memphis, where he would take command of the engine most often associated with him, number 382. Engine 382 was a beautiful 460 engine built by Rogers Locomotive Works, and Casey would accept the run from Memphis to Canton, Mississippi. His fireman on this run would be Sim Webb, The day was April 29th, 1900, just over two months since Casey had taken the job, and he pulled into Poplar Street Station in Memphis right on time, as usual. When he and Sim got there, though, they found out that Sam Tate, the engineer for the southbound run, had called off sick. They were asked if they could double up or make the second run. They said they could, but old 382 needed to be serviced first. Because of this, they pulled out of Memphis at 12.50 at night, 95 minutes behind schedule. It was a rainy and foggy April night, and visibility was bad. Rainy conditions, though, are apparently good conditions to run a steam train in, especially if you're trying to make up time. Casey really leaned in, and by the time he got to Granada, Mississippi, he had made up 40 minutes. 25 miles down the track in Winona, he had made up another 15. When he pulled into Durant, 30 miles after that, he was even closer to the scheduled time. Casey lived for challenges like this, and he had to be happy he was making such good time. He leaned back and smiled and turned to his fireman Sim and said, the old girl's got her dancing slippers on tonight. By the time they pulled into Goodman Station, they were only five minutes behind. There was an excellent chance that they were going to make it to Canton by 4.05, right on the advertised. Sadly, they couldn't possibly know what lay ahead of them. Casey, Sim, and Engine 382 were humming down the line at 75 miles an hour as they approached Vaughn, Mississippi. They knew that there were several freight trains in Vaughn, but these were supposed to pull onto the sidetracks and give way to the passenger trains. What they couldn't possibly have known in the days before radios was that in so doing, Engine number 72 had blown an air hose, locking its brakes. That left engine number 83 stuck, with four cars still on the main track, and nowhere to go. The approach into Vaughn has a long, mile-and-a-half curve to it, and as they sped around it, Sim saw the red lights of the stalled train's caboose. Sim shouted to Casey what he saw. Jump, Sim, jump, was all Casey said as he reversed the throttle and slammed on the brakes. Sim did jump, but old Casey Jones stayed right where he was. Braking as hard as he could, he had slowed the train from 75 miles an hour down to 35 by the time the collision happened. When it did, Casey and 382 went right through the caboose and a car full of hay, one loaded with wood and one with corn, before leaving the track that night. Of all the people on board that train, there was only one casualty. When the rescue workers went to pull the body of Casey Jones from the wreckage that night, they found him with one hand still on the brake and the other still pulling that whistle. His watch had stopped on impact at 3.52 a.m. on April 30, 1900. While Casey's actions were no doubt brave, railroading was a dangerous job back then. 135 engineers were killed that year, 40 in April alone. It's unlikely that we would remember the story of Casey Jones at all if it weren't for a friend of his named Wallace Saunders, an engine wiper in Canton. Saunders was known to make up ballads in his head and sing them to himself as he carried out his work. He made one up about his old friend Casey Jones. The song he wrote had deep meaning to the men who worked the railroad, and soon people were singing it up and down the Illinois Central. Another engineer named William Layton brought the ballad to his brothers, Frank and Bert, who sang it in their vaudeville act. Another vaudeville performer, named T. Lawrence Siebert, heard it and copyrighted the lyrics, which had undoubtedly changed significantly by then. The song would go in many different directions, being recorded by the likes of Burl Ives, Bing Crosby, Johnny Cash, and the Grateful Dead. Books and movies would fuel the legend and make Casey Jones one of the most famous engineers in American history. But let us not forget about the man behind the myth. Jonathan Luther Casey Jones was a motivated, hard-working, upwardly mobile employee, a faithful husband, and a father of three. And he lost it all that fateful night when he chose, instead of jumping to safety, to give his own life for those entrusted in his care. John 1513 states, greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. That night, Casey Jones lay down his life for complete strangers. My hat is off to you, Casey. If we were all as brave as you were, the world would be a better place to live in. Just nine days into the 20th century, on January 9th, 1900, Richard Halliburton was born in Brownsville, Tennessee. When he was just a child, his family moved to Memphis, where Richard would attend the elite Memphis University Preparatory School. From an early age, Richard loved geography and history. He also played the violin, tennis, and golf. When he was 15, though, he developed a rapid heartbeat and was bedbound for 4 months. His family sent him to be treated at the Battle Creek Sanitarium in Battle Creek, Michigan, the place to be treated in the early 1900s. Other noted patients at Battle Creek were Warren G. Harding, to whom I am not related, Amelia Earhart, Thomas Edison, Henry Ford, Sojourner Truth, and Mary Todd Lincoln. The sanitarium was run by John Harvey Kellogg, who supported the clean living movement. His patients got regular exercise and ate a healthy diet rich in fiber, whole grains, and oats. We, of course, remember Kellogg for his most lasting creation, Kellogg's cornflakes. Regular enemas were also on the prescription there, which I'm sure kept everyone on their toes. Sounds like a heck of a place, doesn't it? Whatever they were doing, though, Richard regained his health and went home to Memphis. His younger brother, Wesley, would not be so lucky. In 1917, when he was just 14, Wesley developed rheumatic fever and died. Later that year, despite his parents' wishes that he stay close to home and go to Vanderbilt, Richard enrolled at Princeton instead. In 1919, Richard went to New Orleans, where he told his parents he was visiting friends. Instead, he signed on to work on the freighter Octarera, on its crossing from New Orleans to England. Life on the high seas was harder and less romantic than Richard had expected, but when he arrived in Europe, that all changed. He spent the entire fall semester walking around England and France and soaking in all of the culture and history. He returned to Princeton in January 1920, but the travel bug had bitten him hard. During his remaining time at Princeton, He became the chief editor of the princetonian pictorial magazine and would serve on the editorial board of the daily princetonian he wrote an article about a fishing trip he took with his friends to the montana rockies and sold it to field and stream and it was then that richard halliburton decided he would try and make it as a travel writer he graduated from princeton in 1921 and soon thereafter traveled back to europe he spent the next two years traveling through europe and asia During that time, he climbed the Matterhorn, sailed the Nile, traveled over the Khyber Pass, and visited Bangkok and the temples at Angkor. He traveled on to Japan, where he made the first-ever solo winter ascent of Mount Fuji, and finally returned home to Memphis in March of 1923. He settled in and wrote a book about his adventure, and sent it off to ten publishers, it was rejected by every single one. Then, William Pop Feekins, one of the biggest lecture talent agents in the country, gave Richard a chance, and started booking him on the lecture circuit. Halliburton would vividly recount for his audiences his strange travels to exotic and far off lands, and people loved him. He became a minor celebrity, and soon enough, his book found a publisher, Over their strenuous objections, but at his insistence, the book was titled The Royal Road to Romance. It was a success. Richard took the money he made from this book and went back to Europe, where he retraced the adventures of Ulysses around the Mediterranean. This resulted in his second book, titled, also over his publisher's objection, The Glorious Adventure. With the success of these books, Richard went back to lecturing, He made personal appearances, wrote a syndicated column, and was even on the radio. He became well-known as an adventurer and rubbed elbows with the rich and famous. He also burned through his money and soon found himself broke. In 1928, he took an interesting assignment. Ladies' Home Journal paid him $3,000 an article to write 10 articles for them about Latin America. Richard took it and set off for Mexico. Over the next few months, he retraced the route of Cortez and dove into the sacred cenote at Chichen Itza, also known as the Mayan Well of Death. He spent time willfully incarcerated as a prisoner in the notorious French prison at Devil's Island in French Guiana and marooned himself Robinson Crusoe style on an island in Tobago. In a typical Halliburton stunt, He registered himself as a ship and swam the length of the Panama Canal through the locks. He paid the lowest toll ever based on his weight, 36 cents. In addition to a successful series in Ladies Home Journal, Halliburton compiled these articles into the book New Worlds to Conquer. It was around this time that Richard met journalist and photographer Paul Mooney from my hometown of Washington, D.C. Richard hired Paul as his secretary, and they became friends and lovers. Their relationship would last the rest of both of their lives. While they didn't necessarily flaunt their relationship, they didn't hide it either. Being an openly gay man in the 1930s simply wasn't done and is another example of the bold and fearless nature of Richard Halliburton. In 1930, Halliburton decided he wanted to fly around the world He did a coffee endorsement to buy a twin open-cockpit plane and hired an incredibly skilled pilot, Moy Stevens, to fly it. The deal they struck was that while Stevens wouldn't be paid for his services, all expenses for the trip would be covered. They named their plane the Flying Carpet and, on Christmas Day, 1930, set off from Los Angeles on an 18-month, 33,660-mile circumnavigation of the globe. Since it was 1930, the plane was obviously loaded onto a boat to cross the oceans, but it's still a pretty amazing adventure in a biplane. They visited 34 countries, met kings and princes, and the Maharaja of Nepal. They took a chief headhunter for a ride in their plane, for which he gave them 130 pounds of shrunken heads in a sack. They visited the Taj Mahal, and on Richard's 32nd birthday... He took the first aerial photograph of the summit of Everest. Returning home in mid-1932, Stevens, the pilot, went on to become the chief pilot for Northrop Flying Wing, and Halliburton wrote the book The Flying Carpet. The trip had cost him $50,000. The book earned him twice that. In 1934, Richard Halliburton went back to Europe. He went to the Paris Zoo, and chosen an elephant, which he rode through the Alps like Hannibal. This trip resulted in the book Seven League Boots. In 1937, Halliburton contracted William Alexander Levi to build him a house high on a ridge in Laguna Beach, California. The house was perched 500 feet above the Pacific Ocean on one side and Aliso Canyon on the other, and was given the tongue-in-cheek name Hangover House. Constructed of concrete, steel, and glass, it became a landmark of modern architecture. In fact, Anne Rand visited Richard and Paul there, and used Hangover House as the inspiration for Heller House in her book The Fountainhead. Hangover House went way over budget, and Richard found himself once again strapped for cash. In early 1939, San Francisco would host the Golden Gate International Exposition, This World's Fair would celebrate the recent opening of both the Bay Bridge and the Golden Gate. The promoter for the exposition was Art Linkletter, and he and Richard came up with a great plan. Wouldn't it be cool if famous world explorer Richard Halliburton sailed a Chinese junk from Hong Kong and passed under the Golden Gate Bridge to open the fair? They could stay and give tours of the Bay to visitors. Richard was in. Richard and his partner Paul Mooney sailed to Hong Kong on the SS President Coolidge and contracted the unfortunately named Fat Cow to build their junk in the shipyard at Kowloon. The build was plagued with problems from the start and was constantly over budget and behind schedule. Finally, on February 4, 1939, the junk was christened Sea Dragon and was ready to sail. Sea Dragon was top-heavy and sat low in the water, but they set out anyway. They were gone for five days, during which time first mate John Potter had given himself a hernia trying to hoist the sail, and Mooney had broken an ankle falling off a ladder. The Sea Dragon hadn't fared much better, and it limped back into port in Kowloon. They set out again on March 3rd, by then two weeks too late, to be there to open the Golden Gate Exhibition. On March 23rd, they ran head-on into a typhoon. The SS President Coolidge picked up their transmission about 1,200 miles west of Midway Island. The Australian captain of the Sea Dragon, John Welsh, reported, quote, Southerly gale, heavy rain squalls, high sea, all well. When closer, we may avail ourselves of your direction finder. Regards, Welsh. This was the last anyone ever heard or saw of John Welsh, the Sea Dragon, or Richard Halliburton. Despite a massive search by the United States Navy, no trace of the ship or her passengers was ever found. Sea Dragon was simply gone. Richard Halliburton was 39. There is an empty grave for him in the family plot at Forest Hill Cemetery in Memphis. During his short life, Richard Halliburton had set out to become the most traveled man that ever lived. He may have succeeded. He climbed into public view during the period between the World Wars, and introduced a romantic view of international travel to an entire generation of Americans. He spent time with the Emperor of Ethiopia, the King of Iraq, the Maharaja of Nepal, the Chief of the Headhunters, President Herbert Hoover and the last emperor of China. Perhaps most importantly though, he lived life on his own terms until the day he died. He had once written in a letter to his father, when impulse and spontaneity fail to make my way uneven, then I shall sit up nights, inventing means of making my life as conglomerate and vivid as possible. And when my time comes to die, I'll be able to die happy for I will have done and seen and heard and experienced all the joy, pain, and thrills, any emotion that any human ever had. And I'll be especially happy if I am spared a stupid common death in bed. End quote. I can only hope that when that last wave finally pulled under one of the greatest American explorers of all time, that he died knowing he had truly lived, and that his life would inspire generations of us to come. Clouds of white, bright blessed day, and dark sacred night, and I think to myself, how about everybody? What a wonderful world. It was April 30th, 1917. Seventeen years to the day after Casey Jones's last ride, and the days were getting longer and hotter in Memphis. Fifteen-year-old Antoinette Rappel kissed her mother goodbye that morning, got on her bike, and headed off to school. Her blonde hair blew in the light morning breeze as she made her way down Macon Road towards the Treadwell School. What stopped her on her ride, we will sadly probably never know. But something, or more likely someone, caught her eye, and she stopped. She leaned her bike against a tree and walked into the nearby woods. She would never be seen alive again. Several days later, her decapitated and brutally raped body would be found in those same woods. Her bike was still leaned against the tree, with her things still in the basket. Near her body were found a white handkerchief and a light-colored suit coat. A week later, a man came forward and claimed that the handkerchief was his. He told police he and his friends had been in the area that day, and they had seen a bareheaded white man, whom he described as apparently much excited, leave the underbrush and walk quickly down the road. This man's story was never checked, his friends were never questioned, and apparently even his claim of ownership of the handkerchief found at the scene of the crime was not followed up on. In the local newspaper, the day the crime had been committed, there was a story of a white man wearing a light-colored suit, acting strangely at the train station in nearby Woodstock. The police never pursued this lead, either. Memphis police believed the suspect was a white man, because Antoinette's bicycle was found with all of her belongings leaned against a tree. There was no sign that she had been forcibly seized and dragged from the road. They concluded from this that it was unlikely that a 15-year-old white girl in 1917 Memphis would follow an unknown black man into the woods. It was more likely a white man, and perhaps one she knew and trusted. But the crime didn't occur in the city proper, so it fell under the jurisdiction of Shelby County Sheriff Mike Tate. Tate would instead arrest a 50-something-year-old black woodcutter named William L. Persons, was usually referred to simply as L. Sheriff Tate arrested L. Persons based on the account of Persons' former employer E.J. Brooks. Brooks had fired Persons after Persons had told Brooks's wife that he had had a dream about her. This dream, Tate claimed, was, quote, charged with possibilities. It showed Persons was a Negro capable of committing a crime, such as the Repel murder. It gave us the first inkling of his brutish proclivities, and we lost no time taking him into custody. End quote. Persons was questioned and released, with Tate hoping he would lead them to the scene of the crime. He did not. He was arrested again, questioned again, and released again. When L. Persons was arrested a third time, Sheriff Tate was determined to get him to confess. They held him for 24 hours, tortured and brutally beat him, and eventually got their confession. From there, the sheriff needed some physical proof. For this, they turned to a new theory proposed by French police officer and researcher Alphonse Bertillon. Bertillon claimed that when somebody died, the last image they saw would be burned into their retinas. Despite eye specialists saying it was impossible, Sheriff Tate ordered Antoinette Rappel's body to be exhumed. They didn't take the photograph they had hoped for, because obviously this is a ridiculous theory. But everyone present claimed that her face showed a frozen expression of horror, and in her eyes they saw a clear image of L. Persons. Persons was charged and sent to the state prison in Nashville to await trial. Judges pleaded with then-governor Thomas Rye to provide persons with extra protection, but they were ignored. On May 19th, Sheriff Tate ordered persons returned to Memphis to stand trial. A group of vigilantes calling themselves the Avengers lay in wait, boarding every Memphis-bound train waiting for persons. Although he had been sent on an indirect route through Alabama and Mississippi to provide some protection, his train was intercepted in Potts Camp, Mississippi. Persons was seized by the Avengers and removed from the train. The next day, the newspaper headline screamed, Mob Captures Slayer of Rapel Girl. L. Persons to be lynched near scene of murder may resort to burning. This lynching was to take place in broad daylight between 9 and 9.30 a.m. near the bridge at Wolf River on Macon Road. Despite the time and location being reported in the newspaper, nobody stepped in to stop it. Law enforcement made no attempt to rescue all persons. Local papers also reported in great detail the events that transpired that day. They stated the scene resembled a holiday. Traffic was backed up for a mile and a half. Several refreshment trucks were on hand, selling drinks and sandwiches. Women were their Sunday best. Parents wrote notes excusing their children from school. More than 5,000 people came out to the bridge at Wolf River that morning. At 9 a.m., Antoinette Rappel's mother, Minnie Wood, was asked to say a few words. She stated, quote, I want to thank all my friends who worked so hard on my behalf. Let the Negroes suffer as my little girl suffered, only ten times worse, end quote. El Persons was chained to a log and doused in gasoline. Rappel's mother was offered a match, but she declined. Someone else stepped in and lit L. Persons on fire. The newspapers reported that at the moment the match was struck, 5,000 men, women, and children cheered gloatingly as the match was applied, and a moment later the flames and smoke rose high in the air, and snuffed out the life of the black fiend, end quote. Noted segregationist and future Pulitzer Prize-winning author, David J. Mays, stood near Persons' head through it all and enjoyed the spectacle, quote, in spite of the African odor. The next day, the Tennessean reported, quote, when the body had been burned sufficiently to satisfy the lust of the executioners, one man in the crowd cut out the Negro's heart, Two others cut off his ears, while another hacked off his head. It was an execution without parallel in the history of the South. The hour and place of the lynching were widely advertised, but the organized forces of law and order dared not say nay to the outraged community, end quote. The Memphis Press reported, quote, The majority approved, the minority kept silent, and silence gives consent, end quote. There were 221 lynchings in Tennessee between the end of the Civil War and that morning, 32 in Shelby County. But this was different. It happened in broad daylight. Nobody wore a mask. Nobody feared retribution. Many police officers were there that day, but none in uniform. They cheered along with the rest. Although everyone there knew the men with the gasoline and the one who struck the match, No one was ever arrested for it. L. Persons' remains were put in the back of a truck and scattered in the middle of Beale Street, the heart of the Black Business District in Memphis. His head was tossed out the window at a group of Black doctors who were having a meeting. Pictures of his charred head in the street ran in the newspaper. Postcards of that scene would be sold for months afterward. When news of the murder of L. Persons got out, the NAACP sent a field secretary to investigate. This investigation found no evidence that Persons was guilty. When the investigator visited the scene, he wrote, quote, I tried to balance the suffering of the miserable victim against the moral degradation of Memphis, and the truth flashed over me that in large measure the race question involves the saving of black America's body and white America's soul, End quote. This investigation led to the founding of what was then only the fourth southern chapter of the NAACP, right there in Memphis. Researching and writing this segment has been emotional for me, as I'm sure listening to it has been for you. It makes me sick and sad and angry. It is unlike most other lynchings because we have so many eyewitness accounts and newspaper articles written about it. Even though I believe that most people there that day truly believed L. Persons brutally raped, murdered, and decapitated 15-year-old Antoinette Rappel, we never have the right to serve as judge, jury, and executioner. In this case, in so doing, not only was a likely innocent man savagely killed for a crime he probably didn't commit, but the real murderer got off scot-free. No justice was served that day. None. And in allowing those responsible for this heinous act to go unpunished, no justice was served for all persons either. My attention was drawn to this story by an historical marker erected on Summers Avenue by the Memphis branch of the NAACP, the National Park Service, and the lynching sites project of Memphis. There is another marker nearby, placed there by Facing History and Ourselves, Students Uniting Memphis, and the Shelby County Historical Commission. I offer these groups my respect because, in order to move forward, we cannot just learn the happy stories from history. We must learn stories like this one as well. At the bottom of the marker is a quote from Ida B. Wells, which summarizes my thoughts not just on this story, but on all the difficult stories I tell. It reads The way to right wrongs is to shine the light of truth upon them. Yes, I say. Lord, Lord, have mercy. Lord, Lord, have mercy on me. Samuel Cornelius Phillips was born in poverty to tenant farmer parents in Florence, Alabama in 1923. The Great Depression hit Alabama hard. And from a young age, Sam was working in the cotton fields alongside his parents. From that early age, he was exposed to the rural music of the Deep South, whether in the gospel hymns at church or in the fields, where black work songs by day gave way to mournful blues at night. Times were tough, and music was one of the only outlets people had. Sam fell in love with this music, and in 1940, when he was just 17, he started working at WLAY in Muscle Shoals. W.L.A.Y. had an open format, meaning it played both black and white music, something not common at the time. Sam met Rebecca Burns at the station, where she did her own segment. They married, and in 1945, moved to Memphis. Sam took a job at W.R.E.C. as a sound engineer and an announcer, and hosted a 4 p.m. daily show called Songs of the West. He would later host the Saturday afternoon tea dance, playing blues, pop, and jazz. Sam longed to open his own recording studio, mainly to record local black artists. He knew how much talent there was in Memphis and wanted to tap into it. He enlisted the help of his friend and fellow radio announcer, Marion Keisker, and together they set out to find a location. They found one an 18 foot by 57 foot brick building at 706 Union Avenue, and set about fixing it up and turning it into a studio. In front would be a small office, and behind the office was the main studio with the control room in the back. Sam studied the latest research in acoustic design and covered the ceiling and walls in acoustic tiles, set at weird angles to capture the best sound. Sam got business cards printed, stating their simple motto, We record anything, anywhere, anytime. On January 3, 1950, Memphis Recording Service opened for business. In those early days, anything, anywhere, anytime included a lot of weddings and bar mitzvahs. But people could also come into the studio and make a personal recording on professional equipment for $2 for one side or $3 for both. Sam got his first chance to make a real professional record in May 1950. He recorded Cool Down Mama and Boogie For Me Baby by Lost John Hunter and his Blind Bats for Four Star and Guilt Edge Records. Soon he began recording for the Bihari Brothers Modern Records out of LA. They sent him a young local singer named Riley King to record for their new subsidiary label, RPM. Sam produced some of the earliest recordings for this man, who we of course remember as the legendary BB King. In April of 1951, Ike Turner and Jackie Brenston traveled to Memphis from their home in nearby Clarksdale, Mississippi, to record at Sam's studio. On the drive up, One of their amplifiers fell off the roof and broke. Disheartened but undeterred, they showed up at 706 Union Avenue and presented the amplifier to Sam. He patched the hole with newspaper, and the result was a cool, distorted sound. The song they recorded that day was called Rocket 88. Rocket 88 has sometimes been called the first rock and roll song. Since it is essentially a copycat song of Jimmy rock rockin' 1947 classic Cadillac Boogie, it's that distortion which, in my opinion, lends the only credible argument to that end. And even then I'm a little bit skeptical. But it is a great song. It was around the same time that Sam met and recorded a big man with a big voice named Chester Burnett, who the world remembers as Howlin' Wolf. Burnett's idol was Jimmy Rogers, the blue yodeler, who you may remember from my segment on the Bristol sessions in our last episode. I couldn't do no yodelin', Burnett once said, so I turned to howlin' instead, and it's done me just fine. His song, Moanin' at Midnight, would go to number 10 on the R&B charts, and How Many More Years would go all the way to number four. Despite what we've already heard about and what's yet to come, Sam Phillips always considered Howlin' Wolf his greatest discovery. Since he had produced those records though, it stung when they were released on the Chess label out of Chicago, and he began to really think of starting his own label. That way he could release the songs the big labels were rejecting, and build a catalog of slower, less urban, grittier songs. And so he did. In 1952, Sam Phillips started Sun Records, with the sun representing a new day and a new beginning. The first successful record issued on the Sun label came out in the end of March, 1952. The song is "Driving Slow by Johnny London. London plays the alto sax on the track, and it really demonstrates the brilliance of Sam Phillips and how he could figure out a way to turn what he heard in his head into reality. They rigged some kind of box over London's head, and the effect it gives is of him playing the sax down a long alley or hallway on a humid Memphis night. The production is genius. In 1953, one of the biggest crazes was the response song. These were songs recorded to respond to the lyrics in a previously recorded song. In 1953, the number one song in the country was Hound Dog by Big Mama Thornton. No less than six response songs to Hound Dog came out that year, but the most successful was a song called Bearcat, a collaboration between Sam Phillips and local WDIA DJ Rufus Thomas. It went all the way to number three on the charts. This was a huge hit for Sun Records. Unfortunately for Sam Phillips, the success of the song brought on a copyright infringement suit, which nearly bankrupted him. It did get his name out there, though, and soon Sam was recording Little Junior Parker, Little Milton Campbell, Bobby Blue Bland, and Sleepy John Estes, on whose front porch this episode's music was recorded. The music coming out of Sun Records in the early 50s was fresh and edgy. This was that mid-century Delta Blues sound we've come to know and love. Sam just had a way of capturing it on tape that was rarely duplicated. I found a great quote on 706 Avenue.nl about Sun at that time. It goes like this. It is safe to say that the blues has never sounded as mean, raw, or intense as it did on countless days and nights at 706 Union Avenue. Amplifiers were cranked way past the point of distortion. Guitars slashed like straight razors. Rickety drum kits were pounded with fury and abandon. And the stories, both sung and shouted, spanned the gamut of the Black Southern experience. While Sam was finally recording the music he wanted, the way he wanted to, he was also no doubt frustrated by the difficulty of promoting Black artists in the Jim Crow era South. While the Black tour route, known as the Chitlin Circuit, was well established by that point, these artists couldn't make it really big in the 50s. Sam often told his business partner, Marion Keisker, quote, if I could just find a white man with the Negro sound and the Negro feel, I could make a billion dollars. But Sam wasn't there that day in 1953 when an 18-year-old Crown Electric Company truck driver named Elvis Presley walked through the door at 706 Union Avenue. Marion was there though, and she asked the young man what kind of music he sang. He told her he sang all kinds, To which Marion responded, well, who do you sound like? Elvis' response to this question was visionary. Ma'am, he said, I don't sound like nobody. He recorded two Ink Spots covers that day, My Happiness and That's Where Your Heartache Begins. The songs were terrible, but there was just something about this kid she couldn't put her finger on. While she was cutting his record, she hit the record button behind her. Elvis took his record and left, and when Marion played the tape for Sam, he wasn't impressed. Elvis came back later in the year and recorded another record with Casual Love Affair and I'll Never Stand in Your Way. Sam was equally unimpressed with these recordings, but he understood what Marion had seen in him. There was something there. It was just a matter of figuring out what. A few months later, Sam was listening to a demo record of a song called Without You, He loved the song, but nobody seemed to know the singer. Sam gave Elvis a call to see if he'd be interested in making a record. As the story goes, Elvis was there before Sam hung up the phone. They worked really hard at it, but came up empty. Elvis made enough of an impression that Sam brought him back though. They continued to work, but nothing seemed to be coming of it until late one night when they were taking a break and Elvis started playing around. He launched into an old Arthur Crudup song called That's Alright. When Sam heard it, he had his eureka moment. Here was a white kid with a working class southern accent doing black music. They cut That's Alright that night, and a few days later decided on a cover of Bill Monroe's Blue Moon of Kentucky for the B-side. Sam brought the record over to his friend Dewey Phillips, a DJ who did the popular show Red Hot and Blue on WHBQ. That night, July 10, 1954, Dewey Phillips introduced Elvis Presley to the world. The response was incredible and immediate. The switchboard lit up and the song was played over and over again. Elvis, of course, went on to become the king of rock and roll, but he didn't do it with Son. After a little more than a year passed, Sam Phillips saw the direction Elvis' career was taking, and he knew he had to choose either Elvis or Sun. He chose Sun and sold Elvis's contract to RCA for $40,000. Sam Phillips was in the business of making stars, not riding them. In 1954, a young appliance salesman walked into 706 Union Avenue and tried to record a gospel song. Sam sent him packing, telling him to come back when he had something he could sell. When Johnny Cash returned to Sun, he recorded Cry, 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 which went to number 14 on the charts. His fourth chart single, I Walk the Line, went to number one, stayed on the charts for 43 weeks, and sold 2 million copies. When Carl Perkins heard Elvis' rendition of Blue Moon of Kentucky, he knew he had to go to Memphis and meet the man who had taken the chance on releasing it. He released a few songs on Sun Records, but hit it big in December 1955 with Blue Suede Shoes. This song went to number two on the R&B chart, number two on the pop chart, and number one on the country and western chart. Can you even imagine? Carl once said of Sun Studios, quote, There was a feeling there that I've never found since. We were trying 100% and Sam Phillips captured it. In November of 1956, a young piano player showed up at 706 Union Avenue after having been rejected by every label in Nashville. As with so many before him, Sam just saw something special in this young man and gave him a shot. And soon, the whole world knew the name Jerry Lee Lewis. In 1958, Sam built a new studio at 639 Madison Avenue, but it never had the same magic as the original location sun continued to produce records for another decade but sam gradually passed off the business to others he invested in radio stations and a startup hotel chain called holiday inn sam phillips always believed that music was above race and class and he fought hard to realize that vision when it seemed to him he had he gradually let go right about that time just a few miles away Stax Records seemed to pick up right where he left off. Sam Phillips went on to be inducted into the inaugural class of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. He would later be inducted into the Country Music Hall of Fame and the Blues Hall of Fame, despite never having played an instrument or recorded an album himself. Others were inducted for their hands or their mouths. Sam was inducted for his ears. 706 Union Avenue Became a plumbing company, then a barber shop, an auto parts store, and a scuba shop. In 1985, the building stood vacant. Thankfully, some people came to understand the significance of this tiny brick building and the people who had walked through its door. Surprisingly, it was in pretty good condition, with many of the original acoustic tiles still in place. In 1987, It was reopened as a tourist attraction and a working recording studio. You can go there today and get your photo taken with an actual microphone used by Elvis Presley from the late Sam Phillips' private collection. You can just feel the magic in that room. The year it reopened, U2 came to record several songs for their album Rattle and Hum. One song, When Love Comes to Town, featured one of the very first artists to ever record in that room. Mr. B.B. King. Memphis is today, and always has been, one of the most important cities in the country when it comes to music. Something big was brewing there in the late 40s and early 50s, and it just needed a person with vision and a creative space to set it free. The person was Sam Phillips, with enormous help from his friend and partner, Marion Keisker. The space was not much to look at, but became one of the most legendary addresses in the history of American music. 706 Union Avenue, Memphis, Tennessee. Yeah, I said the thrill is gone. Yes, it's gone far, far from me. Anna Mae Bullock was born into a sharecropper family on November 26, 1939, in Nutbush, Tennessee. When she was young, she sang in the choir at Spring Hill Baptist Church. When Anna was just 11, her parents split, and she was sent to live with her grandmother in nearby Brownsville. She went to Carver High School, where she played basketball and was a cheerleader. When Anna was 16, her grandmother died suddenly, and she was forced to move to St. Louis and live with her mother. She graduated high school and began working as a nurse's aide. She also liked hanging out in the nightclubs in East St. Louis. She particularly liked the Manhattan Club and the band that played there, the Kings of Rhythm. Their lead singer, Ike Turner, had once recorded a little song called Rocket 88, down the river in Memphis. One night, Anna got a hold of a microphone and came up as a guest singer. Ike was impressed. She began singing with them regularly and in 1958 made her recording debut as a backup singer called Little Anne on the song Box Top. In 1960, Ike, Anna, and the Kings of Rhythm were in the studio to record a song called A Fool in Love. When lead singer Art Lasseter didn't show up, Anna filled in with a plan to remove her vocals in post-production and replace them with Lassiter's. However, a local St. Louis DJ heard the song with her singing and thought they had something. He convinced Ike to send the song to Henry Juggy Murray at Sioux Records in New York City. Juggy liked the song, saying it had a funky sound. He also liked Anna, saying in one of my all-time favorite quotes, that she sounded like screaming dirt. He bought the song and publishing rights for $25,000 and went on to manage them for a while. A Fool in Love was released later that year, 1960, and went to number two on the Hot R&B charts and number 27 on Billboard's Hot 100. Juggie also convinced Ike that Anna should be the star of the show. Ike agreed but knew she couldn't be a star called Little Anne. He gave her a new name and trademarked it so that if she left him, he would keep the name. And just like that, 21-year-old Anna Mae Bullock transformed overnight into Tina Turner. Juggy sent them on the road, and their tour on the Chitlin circuit was so exciting and full of energy, people compared it to the great James Brown. I featured in episode seven of this podcast. In 1961, they released "It's Gonna Work Out Fine," which also went to number two on the R&B charts and topped out at number 14 on Billboard. It also won them a Grammy nomination for Best Rock and Roll Performance. Ike and Tina Turner married in 1962 in Tijuana. In 1965, they caught the ear of record producer Phil Spector in Los Angeles. He wanted desperately to work with Tina, just Tina, and paid Ike $20,000 to stay out of the studio. The resulting album was The 1966 River Deep Mountain High. Spector considered it his best work, and when it only went to number 88 on the charts, he retired from the industry. While the album flopped in the US, it went to number 3 in the UK and earned Tina and Ike a spot opening for the Rolling Stones. In 1969, they would open for the Stones again on their U.S. tour and in 1970 appeared on The Ed Sullivan Show. In 1971, their cover of CCR's Proud Mary went to number 4 on the Hot 100, sold a million copies and won them a Grammy for Best R&B Performance, Duo or Group. Later that year, they put out a live album from Carnegie Hall that went gold. In 1973, they recorded Tina's semi-autobiographical hit, Nutbush City Limits. And in 1974, she starred as the acid queen in the rock opera, Tommy. While things were going well for them on the surface, things backstage were pretty bad. Ike struggled with drug abuse his whole life and was prone to violence. He would lash out and Tina was his most common target. Ike was both physically and emotionally abusive for years. Tina saw more than anyone his brilliance and tried to be his friend, but in so doing, endured over a decade of abuse. That's over a decade more than anyone should tolerate. During this time, Tina turned to Buddhism to try and keep her sanity. She still practices it today. Finally, in Dallas in 1976, Ike beat her for the last time. With 36 cents in her pocket, she left him while he was sleeping. She called a lawyer who she thought she could trust, and he sent friends of his to pick her up and put her on a plane to L.A. He let her stay at his house. The next day was the 4th of July, and in her own words, she said Independence Day had never meant so much. She filed for divorce, proceedings which granted her her stage name, but also a mountain of debt for walking out in the middle of a tour. For 16 years, she had been a star but in the late 70s, she was cleaning apartments and struggling to pay her rent. She released a couple of albums, which failed to chart, and finally started a cabaret-style act in Vegas. In 1981, Tina was doing a show at the Ritz in New York, and Rod Stewart happened to be there. He invited her to perform with him on Saturday Night Live, and then to open for him on his US tour. She also opened three shows for The Stones that year and performed with Chuck Berry. She also signed with Capitol Records. In 1983, Tina released a cover of Al Green's hit Let's Stay Together. It went to number 26 on the charts and started one of the great comebacks in music history. In 1984, Tina released the album Private Dancer. The album would go all the way to number three on the Billboard charts, sell 20 million copies, and win four Grammy Awards. The following year, she starred in the Mad Max sequel, Beyond Thunderdome, and won another Grammy for her duet It's Only Love with Brian Adams. That song was on the first album I ever bought, on cassette, when I was 10. In 1986, she published her memoirs, I, Tina, which gave the world a look into her private life. It also gave many women a role model as they left abusive relationships. In 1988, Tina performed in Rio de Janeiro in front of a Guinness World Record-setting crowd of 180,000 paying fans. Incidentally, she also holds the Guinness record for most concert tickets sold in a lifetime by a solo performer. In 1991, she was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Tina continued to tour, and just before her 60th birthday, released the album 24-7. The album went gold and launched her most successful tour, which grossed $100 million. In 2005, Tina received the Kennedy Center Honors for her lifetime contributions to American culture. The award was presented in my hometown of Washington, D.C. In 2010, due in no small part to a campaign by the Glasgow Rangers soccer team, Her song, Simply the Best, returned to the UK singles chart. When it did, she became the only artist in history to have a UK Top 40 hit in six consecutive decades. In 2013, Tina graced the cover of the German edition of Vogue magazine, making her the oldest person worldwide to do so. She was 73. Finally, in 2018, she received her 11th Grammy Award and her most prestigious, This one, the Lifetime Achievement Award. This award has topped off an incredible career for an incredible woman. Though I'm sure it has often felt like a roller coaster, Tina Turner has overcome enormous obstacles to become one of the most recognizable and celebrated performers of our time. Whenever I've seen her perform, I can't help but admire her strength, determination, and raw talent. I endured hardship all the way, she once said. My legacy is that I stayed on course, from the beginning to the end, because I believed in something inside of me. Let that be a lesson for us all. I want to get closer and closer, baby. Closer and closer, baby. I want to get closer and closer, baby closer and closer, babe. That's it for the show this week. Thank you for listening. If you liked what you heard, please do me a favor and rate and review the show. It makes a big difference. If you want more information about me, my journey, or just to get in touch, please visit my website, www.MilesToGoBeforeIsleep.com. That's www.Miles, the number 2, GoBeforeIsleep.com com you can find me on facebook on twitter at miles to go tweet and on instagram at miles to go before i sleep all using the number two for me and you music this week comes from jackson tennessee native lindsey butler and the blue gentleman he's a tough guy to track down online but if you can ever catch his show it's pretty awesome Background music and sound effects come from Kevin McLeod over at Incompetechmusic.com and the wonderful folks at freesfx.com. Our theme music comes from West Tennessee native and Blues Hall of Fame inductee Memphis Slim. I'm headed home from here to catch my breath for a minute, and my next podcast will come from the Buckeye State, Ohio. Until then, I'm your host, Mike Harding, and this is American Anthology keep your eyes on the road, your hands on the wheel, and your headlights pointed towards your next adventure. I've traveled the country over, stopped in each and every.